This is the 10 Q&A, the Temple 10Q Newsletter's monthly podcast. The Temple 10Q is the voice of, by, and for Temple Law School's business law community. Welcome to the 10 Q&A podcast. Today on our podcast, we have Greg Seltzer. Greg is a partner at Ballads Bar, where he focuses his practice on mergers and acquisitions. He is a 2003 Temple Law graduate, a published author, and the founder and executive producer of Philly Music Fest. It is my privilege to welcome to the show, Greg Seltzer. Thank you so much, Abigail. Delighted to be here. We're excited to have you. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure, happy to. Um, I grew up in the north suburbs of Philadelphia um, for high school. Went to uh, undergrad at Penn State. Um, I was an accounting major, and I started my career off working as a CPA at Ernst & Young uh, here in Philadelphia. So I worked as a CPA for um, about three and a half years. Uh, I was an auditor, which uh, is very uh, tedious and not always the most um, riveting work. Um, and, but I always kind of had a knack for math and um, kind of stuck with that as long as I could. But really kind of wanted to get in the position of running transactions and running deals. And in order to do that, kind of the pivot position in, in deal work is the lawyer that is running point on an M&A transaction or an emerging company financing. So I went back to law school. Um, Temple had a night program. So I enrolled in the Temple Law um, evening program while I still was working at Ernst & Young. So I kind of did both of those. Um, that was a wonderfully um, difficult um, two years of working full time and going to law school. Uh, and then, you know, as, as you mentioned, Abigail, after I graduated um, Temple Law in 2003, I also um, got an MBA from the Fox School at Temple uh, while I was there. Um, I started working at Ballard Spar, which, you know, is a one of the bigger law firms in the country and one of Philly's um, top firms. And uh, I've been here. Uh, for about 18 years now, uh, focusing my law practice on mergers and acquisitions, as, as you suggested. And I also run the firm's emerging company and venture capital practice nationally. Um, so that's in a nutshell, my professional background. Um, you mentioned Philly Music Fest. We can get into some of that later um, outside of the work. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what you do with the venture capital transactions and any other interesting parts of your practice? Sure. So the, it's interesting. The, um, the venture capital practice and mergers and acquisitions are two very different skill sets um, and two very different transactions. However, if you think about the spectrum of growth of a company, you essentially have the um, meshing of emerging company and venture capital work and M&A in the trajectory of a company's life cycle. So just to drill down on that a little bit, um, you know, you asking about emerging company work, venture capital, um, what we do in the emerging company and venture pra capital practices from the beginning, meaning the formation of an entity, uh, we get that set. Uh, then that company brings on some capital from angels or venture capital firms. The company grows, um, it grows its workforce, uh, it grows its intellectual property, whether it's patents or branding, um, grows revenue. And eventually after 
a few rounds of financing, which you sometimes might hear them um, called Series A, Series B, Series C financings. These startups and emerging companies arrive at the doorstep of an M&A transaction. Um, some of them go public, but as you and your listeners probably know, there is far fewer initial public offerings, IPOs, um, in the last 10 or 15 years. The industry has moved to the M&A transaction being the exit strategy for most growing companies. So, you know, my team, my emerging company and venture capital team is uniquely situated in a sense that we're venture capital experts, but also M&A lawyers. And that's my background and what I've kind of tried to build my team across the country to be so that we, we render services to these startups for a long period of time called five to seven years of growing, growing, growing. And then we um, transition to a merger and acquisition strategy, whether it's to a private equity fund or a big um, technology strategic. So that's just a, a little glimpse at kind of the intersection of venture capital and how it syncs up with mergers and acquisitions. So you mentioned that venture capital transactional work and mergers and acquisitions are two totally different kinds of law and kinds of practice. So did you go into mergers and acquisitions thinking that you wanted to try some kind of venture capital work or did it just naturally happen because uh, they're kind of linked? That, that's a really interesting question. And um, it's interesting that you phrase it that way because, you know, I, I, I frame the, the, the growth cycle as emerging company it's like emerging company, venture capital, emerging company, venture capital, all the way up, and then M&A is at the end. But you astutely point out that kind of my career trajectory is the opposite because I was an M&A lawyer almost exclusively for 10 years. And then the last eight years, I've been doing emerging company and venture capital work in addition to M&A. So the question I think is, how did the emerging company and venture capital work, which we colloquially refer to as ECVC, um, so how did... How did, um, how did I arrive at the ECBC work? I think it's a, a combination of two factors. Um, one is um, personal to me, I guess, and the other one is um, indicative of the industry. The one that's personal to me is that, you know, when you're at a large law firm and you're, you know, eight, nine, 10 years into practice and you want to be a partner at a big, you know, AmLaw 100 firm, you need to originate some business. Um, it's great that you know, I was able to become a substantive expert and recognized by this publication or that publication. And that's great. But a lot of my colleagues um, get such distinction. You have to be able to bring in some business and originate business. And it just so happened that I didn't have a big network of, you know, country club um, member friends and, um, you know, wealthy parents of my friends that were CEOs or CFOs. My network was a bunch of scrappy entrepreneurs that were starting companies and becoming very successful. Um, so not surprisingly, the work that I was able to bring into Ballard and started representing my network was startup founders and entrepreneurs. So I had to really learn quickly how to service my network and how to service and advise my contacts and friends who were starting these companies. So um, I did a heck of a lot of work and studying on that. And, you know, after eight years have become, you know, one of the you know, better experts at this in our region. So I think that's the personal reason of why I kind of started looking at the startup space. 
But the other one is, as I said, industry focused in a sense that I think if you look at mergers and acquisitions over the last 50 years, I think you will see that um, prior to the last 10 to 15 years, so call it the first 35, 40 years of M&A, it was family owned businesses, you know, in, in very historic industrial types of businesses. So a company makes, you know, screws for a particular garage door opener or a company has a, has a life sciences or a, a biotech or they make a needle or it's med device or something of that nature. And those are kind of old businesses where the founders are 65, 70 years old, deciding to retire. And that's the M&A transaction that a lot of us grew up doing. But in the last 10 or 15 years, the M&A landscape has shifted to the companies that are being sold are not these 50-year-old, 60-year-old family-owned businesses. They're startups that, that are they're tech startups that um, were founded by younger people. And our economy and our industry is now flooded with all of these startups. And now those startups are the ones that are selling. So if you want to be representing the buyers and sellers in this M&A industry right now, you really need to understand venture capital financings and startups and you, because that's now the lifeblood of the M&A industry. So I'm not sure how eloquently I um, connected those dots for you, but I, I think it's an interesting question. And um, I think it's insight into the future of M&A in terms of um, there's going to be a lot more uh, what we call kind of lingo would be like VC backed M&A. Um, you know, the, the 50 year old, 50 years ago example would be you have, you know, um, two brothers that own a business and they each own 50 percent of, of the company and then they sell to a big company. What we're seeing now is a business that's owned by some founders and then venture capitalists and angels and a whole series of financing that are stacked up on the cap table, capitalization table. And that's a very different M&A transaction than the two brothers that just own a company and are selling it. So it's a, it's a different skill set. Just touching a bit about that, that the shift from M&A transactions from focusing on family businesses to now focusing on you know startups who have like a whole host of different um, people who are interested in them or have an interest in the business, do you think there's going to be another shift in that industry? Well, so not not to get go off too on a tangent, but I'll just tease one thing that I that I think we're seeing um, in, in just kind of a forward looking perspective um, type of comment. I, I think that the industry is going to the M and A industry is going to continue to be have focus on startups and mature startups that have gone through several rounds of financing. The big transactions are going to germinate from startups and entrepreneurs as opposed to these legacy family-owned businesses. I think that very safe um, assumption to make. I think one kind of wrinkle is that we're gonna see some of the more bigger bulge bracket banks like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, um, trying to figure out how to wedge themselves into these transactions because those banks typically would underwrite public offerings or participate in large M&A transactions. And I think what we're finding is that they haven't yet figured out how to um, invest in or lend to startups because they're risky endeavors. 
But in the last couple of years, we're starting to see JP Morgan in particular um, create what, what we refer to as a venture debt product. So they will, a bank like JP Morgan will lend money to a startup that has gone through maybe one or two rounds of financing, but is not really you know, a billion dollar market cap company that I think these bigger banks are gonna take some more risk, um, come downstream, if you will, into the startup market and lend some money kind of in a debt capacity um, to try to try to carve out a space for themselves in, in this trajectory. Because otherwise, otherwise, if you just have a startup that's going through rounds of financing by venture capital firms, um, the founders are making money, the venture capitalists are making money, and then ultimately in an exit, um, you know, big strategics like, you know, Google and, and others are, are becoming the buyers. And some of these big investment banks are saying, well, where do we, where do we fit into the puzzle? So I think you're going to increasingly see um, more risky uh, products being uh, created to try to wedge the big banks into the startup ecosystem. Yeah, thank you for that insight. Um, it hadn't even occurred to me that banks would want to enter that kind of space. That was more of a, you know, a person starts a business, then they sell it, then they just move on. But I, I can see how banks would want to kind of enter that space to make a profit. Yeah, the, the, this, if, if you've heard of Silicon Valley Bank, um, they're commonly referred to as SVB. They've been doing this for probably 20 years. Um, and they, they have become a very, very large bank, but they've been, become the largest player in this venture debt space. I think other banks like JP Morgan and Goldman and, and, and others are looking at this and saying, um, well, they're having success, we need to get in the game. So um, SVB dominates the space. There's others, something called Bridge Bank. Um, there's a firm out West called PacWest that, um, that do very well in the space. I just think it's going to become increasingly more active in the next three or four or five years. So shifting gears a bit, you've talked about your practice and how diverse it is. So then what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, so um, it's it's an interesting question. I'm not sure when, when you're going to air this, Abigail, but you're catching me at a time that's um, the, about two, two and a half weeks before Philly Music Fest. So um, typical, a typical day in, in my world um, is not um, exactly what I'm up to in the last uh, month or so and will be for the next two and a half weeks. I'm usually, um, you know, 95% of my professional efforts are, are towards Ballard work and clients, but this is a particularly high impact Philly Music Fest a couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, splitting a practice between mergers and acquisitions and ECVC is unique, um, not just because the work is different. The ECVC is more financing, equity financing transactions, where the M&A work is much more focused on a strategic exit transaction and indemnification issues and um, financial and economic um, drivers in, in things like an earnout or something like that. But there are also distinct practice areas, and ECVC is very high volume, you know, I'll talk to five or six clients in a single day, but a lot of those conversations um, may be as short as 15 minutes, as long as an hour. Um, bootstrapping startups don't like to talk to me for more than an hour. 
gets too expensive. Um, and I'm usually pretty good about not, not billing all of my time to them, but it's very quick hitting on the ECVC space. Um, lots of questions and entrepreneurs moving very quickly. Whereas on the M&A side, um, we'll, the, our calls will be two hours long, um, very, very steady, detailed, an entrepreneur or a family owned business that's going through a once in a lifetime exit transaction for a lot of money that they wanna get right. So those deals are much more slow moving, uh, you know, in terms of day to day, uh, a lot more intense in terms of late nights and weekends to get deals done on the M&A side and a lot of pressure to get a deal closed, especially if you're on the sell side, you want to keep momentum and get a deal closed. So those are kind of polar opposite. You know, um, they, they just have a different ethos, both of those transactions, ECBC and M&A. So but it's a really cool and fun blend to just be moving very quickly with entrepreneurs that are very young and then seeing transitioning one hour later to, you know, a hundred million dollar transaction, um, which is the culmination of someone's life work in, in their professional life. So that's kind of generally what my day looks like. I would say um, just to give a glimpse as well, two other things would be a lot of my time is spent working with associates, um, both of these M&A and ECVC are very high touch area for associates where associates can be incredibly involved and valuable. So I spend a lot of time training associates, talking to associates and getting them involved, uh, reviewing all of the work that the associates do. So there's a lot of kind of team interaction in the M&A and ECVC space, probably more so than other areas of the law. Not a, it's not very much you know research and writing focused. It's a little bit more um, transactional, corporate, and team oriented, and then just because it's front of mind, um, Philly Music Fest is a, you know, it's an it's a nonprofit in, endeavor that I started five years ago. Uh, I do it with my wife and and I, and we're the only two people that do Philly Music Fest work. So it's very very um, time intensive. And and what it is in a nutshell, if your listeners are interested, is it's a nonprofit music festival that kind of has a triple bottom line. Um, vibe to it. Uh, we only book local musicians from Philadelphia, uh, some are national touring artists that go all around the country and the world, and some are emerging artists that maybe don't even have anything on Spotify yet. But um, so it's a mix of headliners and emerging, but everyone's from Philadelphia that plays the festival. We also host the festival at independent music venues, so not big Live Nation or AG venues. We're trying to support kind of our independent private community um, clubs and, and venues. And then the, the trick to it all is that instead of paying the venues, paying the musicians, and then keeping the profits, what we do at Philly Music Fest, which is a disruptive business model um, that I came up with is we pay the musicians very well. We pay the venues. And then we take the profits and we donate all of the profits to music education for children. And therefore, we are reinvesting in the music scene of Philadelphia, where the children right now that are in middle school and high school, they're getting education so they can be the bands that are in our city in, in 10 or 12 years from now. So it's kind of this cycle um, that you know has a business model as its backbone, but it's very much a nonprofit endeavor, and we feel pretty passionate about it. So that's all going on right now. And, um, 
it's it's a lot of work, but it's a labor of love. I really saw that you had a passion for music. You created for the Music Fest. You wrote like several books about specific decades in music. So where does this passion come from, and how do you balance it with like law school with uh, your current job and just the day to day? Yeah, so music's always been, uh, it doesn't feel like, it's an interesting word that you, that you use, balancing. Um, it, it, I've never thought about it like that, you know, that, it, that it's something that needs to be balanced. It, music has always just been my outlet. So, you know, dating back to undergrad at Penn State, you know, accounting was a pretty tough major. Uh, it was a little more difficult than some of my friends at, at the time. Um, so. I would remember being stressed and turning to music to, you know, really kind of be an outlet um, for, for stress. And that continued all the way into law school. Um, I have unbelievably to some people, but it comes natural to me. You know, I, I have no problem listening to music with words or jazz music while I'm reading, while I'm doing work. Um, that's never been a problem for me. So I always have music on when I am doing my work. And sometimes um, I'm focusing on the music um, at a break or something like that. But even when I'm focusing on my work, I can, I kind of just have music as a part of my professional life. So I've never really thought of it as balancing, but um, it's just always been there in a nice outlet for me. And it's only been recently since Philly Music Fest, to be honest, that I've really blurred the lines between music and uh, my professional life you know philly music fest is has a lot of aspects of clients uh, that support philly music fest or that um, i use philly music fest as, as as an option for my clients to have little company outings or something like that so so there is this kind of blurred community with philly music fest and ballard honestly has been so tremendously supportive of the nonprofit. Um, that I'm building um, has has donated pro bono legal services to Philly Music Fest. So it's it's really just kind of intertwined. But I think the heart of or the core to answering your question is it's really just kind of an outlet for me. It doesn't feel like work. It's 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 fun and kind of my personality being a math person and a CPA and now a lawyer, anything I do, even as a passion, whether it's sports or music or anything i i just overanalyze the heck out of everything so when you talk about the books about specific years in music um yes i'm having fun listening to music but i'm also always taking notes um, i'm always analyzing so those books uh that that were published one on 1965 one on 1968 they're just kind of the nexus between music and analysis um, so I just can't ever separate the, the two. So that's probably my best shot at answering the question of how I arrived at Philly Music Fest and kind of the, the books and things like that. Thank you for that. I think it's a great answer. Honestly, I'm, one of, I'm kind of the same. When I study, as I'm currently in law school, I put on music, um, doesn't matter what kind. And I guess we're the same type of people who don't, who don't mind having lyrics and still studying, so. Yeah. So I've heard from a lot of people that they can listen to jazz or classical music while they're reading or studying, but anything with words disrupts people. And I, I just, 
I just have never understood that. Like for me, words is just another, another instrument. I do focus on lyrics in those books that, that we were talking about. I, I excerpt lyrics. I dive into the meaning of Bob Dylan lyrics or something like that. So I'm very intently focused that there's meaning in the lyrics, but when I hear them, um, I, it, it doesn't disrupt my focus on a, on a legal document or studying. So, um, uh, at school that you have the same experience. Why was the nonprofit focus of Philly Music Fest based on music education instead of giving back to Philadelphia-based music creators? So that that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think there's a fine line between music education and up-and-coming artists. I, I, I think that up-and-coming, or sometimes I refer to them as emerging artists, super important sector of the ecosystem that needs to be supported. But I feel as though I'm supporting them by giving them exposure and putting them on the Philly Music Fest bill. So we have like 20 bands that play Philly Music Fest each year. Um, there's five bands that'll be national touring bands that are all around the world. And then the remaining 15 slots are usually these up and coming kind of emerging bands. So we, we give them exposure. Um, anecdotally, we, we had a band called Great Time um, in 20, 2018, and uh, we gave them really like their first, one of their first bookings at Philly Music Fest, and I just saw them at the WXPN Festival uh, in Camden. They were on one of the big, huge stages, and I know for certain that the person at XPN that books the XPN Festival saw this band at Philly Music Fest for the first time like them and gave them an opportunity now four years later to play the big stage broadcasted on WXPN all over the world. Um, so just that's an example of, I think the up and we're, I'm, I feel like with Philly Music Fest, we're serving the up and coming and emerging artists. And the, the blind spot of the ecosystem, I think, um, is the music education for kids because there's no music programming, you know, at public schools. A lot of it's been cut. Um, music instruments are for a lot of folks in, um, you know, lower income communities, they're very hard to afford. Um, not to mention you need instruction and, you know, lessons. And it's just music should not be, you know, an artistic avenue for just privileged kids. We need to make sure that we're getting in the neighborhoods and the communities and teaching kids any art form, not just guitar, piano, but hip hop electronic music, whatever it is. So we felt that we could serve the community and the music ecosystem in Philly better by routing the proceeds and the profits to music education, but we're still paying the bands that are playing and we're still giving them exposure. So, you know, that that's kind of what we came up with in terms of it being a nonprofit. Um, you know, I, I looked at the business model of starting a festival um, and I'll just be honest, like, there's not a lot of profit in it. If, if we wanted, if the Philly Music Fest was a for-profit, in order for us to make money as a typical business, we'd be either taking from bands, taking from artists, or paying the venues less. The venues would be making money or the artists would be making less money. And, you know, we just kind of take, took a step, step back. My wife and I were just like, we just like doing this. It's fun. Um, and we think we can make a difference. Why should we make money 
at the expense of the bands and the venues. So then once we made it a nonprofit, we were like, whoa, now we have, you know, 30% profit margin from this festival. We can now route that to music education. And then that was kind of the kernel of the idea. And we realized that the festival being a nonprofit could make a way big, bigger impact than, than a for-profit festival that put, you know, a little bit of money in our pockets. So um, that's kind of how we, that's kind of how we arrived there. I'll tell you one, one interesting comment and thought that I've made before that you might be interested in is that there is another nexus between Philly Music Fest and kind of my emerging company and venture capital practice. And that's that Philly Music Fest is kind of my little startup, you know, and it's bigger now. We started with one venue and now we have five venues five years later. So um, yes, it's a nonprofit. Yes, it's in the arts and it's not tech or something like that. But, but you know, learning from my clients and watching my clients build startup companies that have sold in a big M&A transactions, I've been able to pick up some things over the years about how to be organized, how to execute. Um, and, and I look at Philly Music Fest as kind of like my little startup that I founded and it's growing every year and it's making an impact. And um, I think there's a direct correlation if you look at the business of Philly Music Fest to kind of emerging company work. There's, there's a direct line between the two of those. What advice would you give new lawyers, current, current lawyers or any like future law students? So I guess a, a couple things. Um, one, the first maybe one or two are substantive and then the last one's probably a little fluffy, but um, something I still believe in. I think for current, more junior lawyers, whether it's students um, or first, second, third year lawyers, I think it's really important to arrive in your seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth year of a lawyer doing legal work that you really um, enjoy doing. I see a lot of lawyers kind of get burned out, leave the profession. Um, you know, some go in-house, but some just go out completely. And, and I think that you hear them say, well, I just didn't like being a lawyer. And, and I can't help but thinking that they, they just didn't like practicing the law that they were practicing because there's so many options within um, the, the field of law generally. So I, I would encourage people to try to be generalists in the beginning. Try to figure out if you want to be in a courtroom or, or do litigation and write briefs, or do you want to do something other than that, which is tip, tip, you know, typically um, transactional, but it could be real estate, could be corporate deals, something like that. Um, and, and I would try not to go too much deeper than that. Um, and I would be trying to, and I counsel associates at Ballard on this all the time, is that try to arrive after your second year of having a major and a minor. You don't necessarily have to focus on one thing. Try to keep that college mindset of major minor and, and just kind of try to figure out a major and minor that fit together. And I think that's particularly important in geographic areas like Philadelphia um, or Atlanta or Boston um, where you know, you're not just gonna be a one track um, specialist in an area to be a really good business advisor or lawyer, you have to have different disciplines. So you can have a main expertise 
um, that's, you know, emerging company work, but then you can also do healthcare or you can do M&A or you can do something. But um, I would just try to keep that major minor uh, intact. In and then the fluffy part, I would say, is, you know, you really, when you go into these firms and when you start your legal career, you know, don't, don't necessarily act and try to be like what you think a lawyer should be. Um, get the work done, do very high quality substantive work, but you have to be yourself. And I think when we talked about music earlier, um, it wasn't until the last five or six years that I kind of was able to say, you know what, well, I love music and I do some sports stuff on the side as well that's connected to legal. Why can't I blend that into my practice a little bit? Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be a sports agent or um, a music producer, um, you can do it pro bono and give back to the community. So I think it's really important to kind of keep your personal brand and your personal identity intact when you get into law firms, um, because it, it will um, manifest itself in passion areas that you can give back to the community and help. So I would encourage young lawyers to just focus on the substance, but in the way back of your brain, just kind of remember to remember to be yourself, because that's probably what got the person to this point anyway. Thank you for that great advice. And thank you for being on Temple's 10 Q&A. You got it. It was a pleasure talking to you.